Hello, hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Skeptics and Seekers Sunday Sermon. This is 4S. I'm David Johnson. Let's get started. <clears throat> yes, it's going to be that kind of show. I'm very sick. I don't have a fever. But I've been uh, sick since Saturday, a little before Saturday, actually, which, which is when I recorded the last show with uh, Darren. But almost uh, immediately after that show, I lost my voice almost entirely. And uh, it's been it's been downhill from there. Uh, this giant thing that I've got in front of me, it's uh, something to help reduce echoes on my microphone. You won't see it all the time, but I have so little voice right now. I'm using the the hottest mic I've got, and uh, I'm trying to reduce any extraneous noise. So anything that I could do to help my voice, I will do. So even if I have to speak directly into this thing every now and then, it should at least help you understand what I am trying to say. If the video just jumped at that spot, it's because I used the pause and resume function, which I will probably do throughout this video and if I have to do something gross like blow my nose or just wipe some snot away I will I will shut off my camera I wanted to do this whole thing without a camera on in the first place I still might go to that depending on how how badly things go so we will see, but I am going to soldier on because I want to do this show. <clears throat> I really enjoyed last week's show. This week is a kind of a follow on and next week will be part two of this show. I don't have any guests with me today. I did invite David Russell as this video will contain uh, some of David Russell's own comments from one of his shows uh, on this subject, but I did not hear from David Russell. I just want wanted you to know I did uh, send a message to Russell and I just did not hear from him. So uh, we're going to do this show on uh, the self-authenticating inner witness and we're going to focus on this uh, David Russell show. It's a kind of a long video, but we're going to go through all of it. We're going to go through the first part, which is Travis's introduction. Uh, we're going to go through that uh, bit by bit. And then after that, after they get into the discussion, I'll probably just let it play for longer periods of time. And uh, next week, we will be going over William Lane Craig on this subject. And he has a very informative well, I say informative. Maybe you will be informed, but he has a very detailed um, take on this. And so we're going to go through one of his lectures on this, and we'll finish off this series, after which I might take a very small holiday break. We'll get back in the first of the year. It won't be a very long break. It might be one week. <clears throat> but um, I need at least a week where I'm not doing any shows. Red Letters, of course, is coming back. Go ahead and hold your place at Red Letters. There are a limited number of people allowed to sign up. 
uh, I'm going to have to cut it off at 3 million. So make sure to get your spot now. All of this is bullshit. I don't think Patreon has any limits and I'm not anywhere close to 3 million. Still, act now just for the hell of it. Uh, go on over to patreon.com slash red letters. Go ahead and join up. It's a dollar a week, essentially. It's a dollar per show. I've been working on uh, shows for season two. You don't get billed until I start doing shows, which won't happen until January. I hope to start that on time. So the first week in January is my my hope for that. And uh, like I said, after this series on the inner witness of the Holy Spirit, we're going to take a brief, a very brief hiatus from 4S. The comment page, though, will still be open. You will still have access to all the shows. Just jump in, skepticsandseekers.squarespace.com, uh, and uh, open up uh, your Discuss account and discuss away. Uh, it's as simple as that. If you want to send me an email, you can email me directly at skepticsandseekers at gmail dot com <clears throat> okay inner witness of the um holy spirit i think that's enough ado and so without any further let's get started nice if that like i said if that door ever presents itself man i'll jump through it but uh all right guys so let's get started shall we we are discussing the inner witness of the holy spirit i just want to thank everybody for tuning in watching this please don't forget to if you like this content make sure to give us a thumbs up uh subs subscribe to the channel if you feel uh led to do that and and like i said travis i'm excited to uh to get in this subject so i know you had an intro prepared brother so if you want to go ahead and take it away uh let's start with sure. that yeah and so um you know I, i've kind of jotted some of my my thoughts down on this um i actually debated on whether or not i actually wanted to do a presentation or just kind of uh you know go off the top of my head but i went ahead and, and jotted some notes uh down so First and foremost, I think it's important to lay out that when I talk about, you know, the witness of the Holy Spirit uh, in the life of the believer and so forth, I'm not referring to it in a charismatic sense, uh, you know, in the way that they would interpret, you know, uh, the, the Holy Spirit, uh, you know, the experiences of the Holy Spirit, nor am I doing it in an overly fundamentalist conservative way that would say that, you know, the witness of the Holy Spirit, you know, uh, bears witness to my interpretations of the Bible and, and, and lets me know that my conservative interpretation of certain Bible passages is correct. Uh, that's not really the focus uh, of what I'm going to be touching on. Uh, this has to do somewhat with religious epistemology, uh, and I'm going to be getting into that first. Okay, so we are going to get to this later, but I just wanted to highlight the phrase religious epistemology one last thing this is a drinking game <clears throat> please prepare whatever libation is legal for you to have in the place where you are drink responsibly i'm not telling you what to drink i don't drink alcoholic beverages but I do have this 
cup of tea. <coughs> Sorry. Part of the reason for the drinking game is to make sure that I stay hydrated through this podcast. And also to make sure that you, the audience, get utterly hammered. You're welcome. Uh, so here's here's the game. Every time the words census divinitatis come up, you must take a drink. I will leave it up to you to decide whether it is a long pull or a short pull. Yeah, I don't know how much drink you have available. It's going to come up a lot. You might want to pace yourself. <clears throat> also, any any other words that sound particularly jargony for no good reason, you may take a drink. If it is some term or idea that it sounds like a Christian has completely made up or a philosopher has completely made up to justify their argument, you may take a drink. I'm not going to tell you when those things are, okay? You're going to have to you're going to have to make a, a judgment there. I will be taking drinks from time to time that have absolutely nothing to do with the drinking game, but I will follow suit with the drinking game to the best of my ability. Now, you also have to drink when I say census divinitatis. Okay, then. With that in mind, let's launch into this. Yeah, let's see if I can figure out how to launch back into this. Here we go. But um, I thought I'd also kind of, you know, more than the uh, religious epistemology is, is make this sort of uh, an inspiration uh, for believers. And, and you know, we're going to look, be looking at like a lot of scriptural passages and what the Bible says about being led by the spirit and so forth. But uh, with that being said, we go back to what John Calvin called the census divinitatis or sense of the divine. And probably one of the most prominent models of the census divinitatis is Alvin Plantiga's Aquinas Calvin model that the census divinitatis is a special religious faculty. So basically what's known as reformed epistemology would state that God is a properly basic uh, belief in God is properly basic on the condition of properly functioning cognitive faculties, also known as proper functionalism. Plantinga used the census divinitatis uh, model to uh, uh, non to model non-inferentially warranted theistic belief. According to Plantiga, the census divinitatis is a kind of cognitive mechanism which takes a wide variety of circumstances and produces in us beliefs about God. Okay. All right. We're, we're going to stop right there. I can't keep up with the drinking. Um, <coughs> I'm, I'm worried about Sarah, I understand that Chinese beers <clears throat> really 
really pack a punch. You really hit the wall with uh, with those. So, um, you know, maybe around uh, the 45-minute mark, someone should just check on Sarah. <laughs> okay. uh, Sarah, let us know in the comments that you are okay. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, really, guys, pace yourself. It's going to be a long show. All right. Here's here's some things uh, that I just wanted to note from this section on the census divinitatis. Okay. This is a special religious faculty. Now, now I'm assuming that this special religious faculty is like, you know, our five senses, sight, smell, uh, hearing, touch, um, and, and the other thing. <laughs> it's, it's funny how difficult naming the five senses are. No, I'm sorry. Sight, smell, sound, taste, touch. That's it. S's and T's. <clears throat> so add in a fourth S, since, excuse me, census divinitatis. I'm assuming it's something like that in their mind. Now, there will be further explanation of this, I'm, I'm thinking. But one of the things that he said is it's a special religious faculty. How do we know that this faculty exists? I mean, can we just invent new faculties? And, and there are faculties that are specifically designed for religion. Does that even sound plausible? Uh, to anyone, um, <clears throat> properly basic belief. Is this one of these terms we should drink to? Uh, belief in God is a properly basic belief on the condition of properly functioning faculties. So these are some of the things that he has said. And obviously, I've got a few questions. So what is the point of a properly basic belief? Yes, I've read some Plandica. It really doesn't clear it up for me. What is the point of a properly basic belief? Because it seems to me that being properly basic doesn't ensure that the belief is true. <clears throat> It, it's just a way for Christians to say, well, you know, it's not unreasonable to believe this thing. You know, given a scant bit of evidence. Now, I don't know that I would completely disagree with that. You know, if you look around and you see some trees, this example is used later in the video. You look around and you see a tree. Um, you know, your eyeballs tell you it's a tree. Your brain tells you it's a tree. You're not going to investigate it overly much. You believe that you're seeing a tree. You believe a tree is there. I think that's, uh, I think that's fine. 
is is that really a properly basic belief? You know, if if that's all it is, I'm not entirely sure why we're talking about it. So I think that Christians mean more than that, or or they're trying to use it to smuggle in some things that no one outside of religion would consider properly basic. That's, that's kind of where I think it's going in there. Because just because you think you see a tree, it doesn't mean you see a tree, especially if you're half blind. Lots of things look like trees to people with really bad vision. <laughs> so, um, and maybe your vision is good, but it's a foggy day, lots of fog. So a person might look like a tree. You think you see a tree? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Uh, your night vision goggles aren't very good. You think you see a tree and you don't. <clears throat> In the last couple of cases, there's nothing wrong with your eyes. Your eyes are functioning properly. Just due to the circumstances, you think you see a tree, but you really don't. Is it, is it a properly basic belief to say that you do see a tree or that it's it's justifiable to believe it's a tree? Well, it may be. I don't know. If you know that your vision is being impaired or occluded in some way, or that you just took a way too much dose of LSD, maybe it's not properly basic to believe everything you see. But even so, the, the fact that you saw it you know, you glimpsed it out of the corner of your eye. Looked like a tree. It's not a very important proposition, not worth investigating, so you believe you saw a tree. Okay, I'm okay with that, unless it is important. And then maybe you have to dig a little bit deeper, because on that basis, many people have seen UFOs and aliens and ghosts and all sorts of other things. So being a properly basic belief doesn't seem to ensure that the belief is true. So what's the point of a properly basic belief, really? You know, just besides giving Christians a mechanism to import uh, other things as true by calling them properly basic. You know, I believe in God. That's a properly basic belief. But if, if we're in agreement that a properly basic belief doesn't mean that what you believe you saw or experienced is true, then I'm back to my original question, then what's the point? You know, it's, it's something that still needs to be uh, authenticated. So this, this feels like jargon to me. It did the first time I heard this language, the PBBs. Um, it sounds jargony, and it seems like it's obscuring uh, the work that the, the Christian is really trying to give it. So, okay, what is a properly functioning religious faculty? Since, uh, since this also came up, a properly functioning religious factor, faculty, what, what is that? First of all, what is a religious faculty? I mean, I, I don't know. I really don't know. 
some Christian is going to have to explain this in a way that doesn't seem they're just making stuff up. I'm going to help you out, Darren. I'm just, I'm just going to say it for you since you're not here with me today. Don't provide a definition where you just made shit up. Give, give me the real definition of a religious faculty. I don't think you can give me a definition of religious faculty because it is, in fact, a made-up thing. It's just something that's made up. Um, but let's say it's not made up. Can you tell me something about the religious faculty? Who discovered it? Can you tell me that? What peer review uh, papers uh, talk about a confirmation of the discovery of the religious faculty? Where can I read about it? Learn more about the religious faculty so that I can be as confident in its existence as uh, Christians are. Who is a, an expert, an authority expert on the religious faculty, and, and how did they get that expertise? All right. Um, how, how can we tell if your explanation of religious faculty is true? Is there a way to do that, a way to fact-check you, uh, dear Christian, if you provide a definition? Is there a way that we can tell if what you're saying is true, or, or do we just have to take your word for it, or the word of whoever you quote for it? Who can judge if my religious faculties are properly functioning, right? Because part of this is properly functioning religious faculties. How do you know my religious faculties aren't properly functioning? Who's able to make that determination? Are there religious doctors who specialize in properly functioning religious faculties? Who can tell if your religious faculties are properly functioning? Okay, if your religious faculties are not properly functioning, is it not possible that you could be deceived into thinking your religious faculties are properly functioning? Yeah, okay. And um, a term he either used or is about to use, I, I don't remember now, but I'll just get this out of the way. Non-inferential warranted theistic belief. That's a term. What does that mean? What is a non-inferential warranted theistic belief? Right then. He says, uh, quote, we can think of the census divinitatis as an input-output device. It takes the circumstances such as the experience of flowers, sunsets, the starry sky above, the moral law within, as input in issues as output theistic beliefs. Okay. So we've got um, a little bit of a 
definition here. The synthesis divinity. It's a cognitive mechanism that takes a wide variety of circumstances and produces within us beliefs about God. Uh, when was when was this cognitive mechanism discovered? Again, I, I I'm kind of owned to that because it seems like they're just making up attributes of the brain or the psyche, and and that that seems unfair. I mean, I could I could make up my own. Um, it's an input output device. That's interesting, isn't it? It takes input, like the beauty of a sunset or flowers, and outputs theistic belief. I feel like we can put the sensitive divinitatis to bed with that definition. I think, I think that's all we need to be able to rationally dismiss this entire concept. You know, my properly basic belief is that sounds batshit crazy. Why are we, why are we even going through more of this? You see, it, it, it inputs things that are emotionally stirring and it outputs belief in God. Dang. Is it, uh, okay, if uh, I make a, make up a sense faculty... You know, maybe, maybe there's a seventh sense. Maybe, maybe I can invent a sense faculty of, oh, I don't know. Um, I can, I can invent this sense faculty of knowing when something is healthy or unhealthy. I think that would be a useful one to have. You know, you, you, you see a plate of food that's being served to you and you don't recognize the food. Maybe it's, uh, you know, you're at, you're at the house of a, a friend of yours who comes from a different place and they want you to kind of taste their culture and you don't recognize any on the plate at all. Would it be nice to have a sense factory to know if what's being served to you is healthy or not? Well, guess what? you do have that sense faculty. You don't have to actually know anything about the food. You don't have to know anything about nutrition. A properly functioning health mechanism, you know, this cognitive mechanism that I've just invented, is enough to tell you if something that you're about to eat is good. Now, are, are you suggesting that you don't seem to be able to do that? Well, how is that my problem? That's just telling me that your cognitive mechanism is malfunctioning. In quote. So the, the, the sensations of a sunset, for example, uh, would trigger the sensus divinitatis, which produces a theistic belief in turn. 
But the focus, uh, to focus on the aspect of epistemic justification on a proper functionalist uh, theory of justification, the theistic belief is justified when it uh, results from a properly functioning cognitive faculty that is reliably aimed at producing the truth uh, in the circumstances for which it was de designed. Okay. I've got to, I've got to stop you right there, uh, Travis. Our senses, he says, the properly functioning thingy. I'm, I'm just going to say senses thingy because I'm going to run out of tea here pretty soon. Our, our properly functioning senses thingy is aimed at producing the truth. Well, that's useful, isn't it? I mean, that's really useful. Why are we even bothering with lie detectors? Because our properly functioning senses will reveal the truth to us. Except that seems wrong, doesn't it? So I'm just going to say categorically, our senses are not aimed at producing the truth about anything. There is nothing about our senses that are aimed at truth-seeking and truth-production. They're not. In fact, they are notoriously bad at pointing us to truth. They're good at some other things, but they're kind of bad at pointing to the truth. But it doesn't matter whether you think that our senses are good at pointing to the truth or bad at them. All right, maybe maybe over time they'll get better, and then I would say our senses are good for aiming at the truth. That doesn't change what I'm saying here. What I'm saying is our senses are not aimed at producing the truth. This is one of those areas where Christians are trying to smuggle in an apologetic. And the apologetic that they are trying to smuggle in is the apologetic of intelligent design. You see, you were designed, you were created, and everything about you is designed not, not just to be there, but designed for a particular purpose. It is, it is to serve a particular function toward a particular purposeful end. And so your senses are also designed, they are targeted to do a specific thing by design. This is the thing that Travis is smuggling in and he may not even realize it. Now, realize he's talking to a panel of other Christians who also have the same assumption. But Travis, you are speaking out loud, and it's not just Christians you're listening to, and I see what you're doing there, even if you don't. You are smuggling in a design argument and just kind of assuming it as fact and applying it to our senses. I cry foul, I cry foul. Okay. Um, an example I use is that a person is lost in a desert 
they are down to their last uh, bit of energy. They're they're going to die if they don't choose well. You know, go one direction and they can get out of the desert and get to safety. Go another direction and you die. There's no safety. And so they use their senses and they see a body of water, an oasis, and it's close. And they see it. It's very clear to them. They look the other way and it's just sandy and they don't, they don't see anything past the sand. And so they look to the oasis and they go in that direction. Ah, but what if they run into a mirage? It's just more sand, more sand. If they had gone the other way, you know, through the sandstorm, just a few more steps and they would have made it to safety. There's nothing about their senses that told them which way safety was. In fact, in that scenario, their senses have lied to them. This has been the exact scenario or, scenario, or close enough to the scenario of many people who have died in the desert. Their eyes are functioning just fine. Their optic nerve is functioning just fine. They're in unfortunate circumstances. But... Um, you see, their senses has no responsibility, no inherent responsibility to point them to truth. It does not. You uh, look at a beautiful exotic flower and you reach out to touch it and your hand gets bitten off because it's a Venus flytrap. Your, your senses did nothing to tell you the truth about this situation. So, um, this is not, um, something skeptics that you should let Christians get away with. Properly functioning senses have nothing to do with senses being, uh, our senses being designed for truth discovery. Okay, let's move on. If I can move on. So it exists and was created as a faculty to work in such a way as to reveal the existence uh, of theistic belief, which is uh, justified absent any overwhelming defeater. Uh, with this, uh, we also have the work of somebody like uh, William Lane Craig, uh, who has argued that, you know, uh, we all have sort of this uh, census divinitatis within us, but it somehow become defective due to uh, the fall and, uh, you know, the nature of uh, sin. Okay. This uh, is going to be a question that comes up a little bit later in the video. But it's certainly a question that I had and one that uh, I'm sure that many of the audience members have. You know, if everyone is given this census thinging, which is geared toward discovering truth, producing true ideas within you, such as the existence of God, why doesn't everyone believe in God? What is wrong with our 
census thingy. I mean, it must be defective, right? But why would allow, why would God allow sin to destroy something so central to knowing him? Right? Sin did not destroy our ability to speak. It did not destroy our ability to walk upright. It, not it didn't destroy our ability to create languages so that we can understand each other and learn other people's languages. Sin didn't destroy any of that. So it doesn't have to destroy this census thingy. This is a choice of God. You know, this is the, fail the failure mode choice of God. You know, sin... You know, think about all the other things that sin didn't do. It didn't cause us to sprout three heads. It didn't cause us to lose an arm. You know, it, it didn't cause us to lose our sense of smell. Sin didn't do any of that. Because God didn't want sin to do any of that. And yet God was completely okay with letting sin destroy the senses thingy. Why? Uh, if our, our senses thingies are destroyed, how does one even develop a desire to seek out and receive Jesus since our senses are broken? Our hearts are wicked and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So how do you go from there to wanting to know Jesus? And it's not enough to say, well, we've got some, we all have some small, you know, gift of the Holy Spirit. So it's enough for us to overcome the damage to our senses thingy. And yet we don't all overcome the damage. Some do and some don't. So this, that answer just is unsatisfying at every level. If your senses thingy, uh, reassures you of things like the existence of God, why do so many Christians stop believing and stop having assurance of their salvation and such? Just a few questions. And things of that nature. And so with this, I think... Uh... So I believe Travis went away. I <laughs> <laughs> was going. He was rolling, man. He was rolling. Yeah, he's talking about uh, uh, claims from Craig and Plantinga here that uh, okay. that operate off of proper, properly basic beliefs. Uh, it, it's pretty. It, it's pretty in depth. So yeah, very just... in depth. So let's break this down, David. Can you break this down for me and for our listeners? Uh, so the sense is the divinitatis. This is the sense of the divine, right? This is right. we all, and and this is something that all humans would have, correct? This has nothing yes. to do with regeneration, right? It, it, it's all humans have it in a way. Uh, okay. I'll, I'll I'll talk more about it later because Travis is back now, and and we'll break it down together once he is done. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, like I was saying, don't give me the um, floor. I'm not going to be focusing too much on the. Uh, <laughs> okay, can you hear me? We can hear you now. You froze, yeah, you froze uh, up okay. again. 
Okay, sorry. My my internet is on the fridge. Sorry about that. Okay, so, um, you know, uh, what I was going to say is, you know, we have the work of somebody like William Lane Craig who would say that, you know, we all have this uh, census divinitatis, but that it's become defective due to our sinful nature and that when we receive Christ and are uh, indwelt with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit sort of revises our census divinitatis. I'm going to need more tea. Um, yeah, he, he says this a lot, when we receive Christ. But it, it just makes me want to reiterate the, the question I asked before, which is how do we ever come to a place where we want to receive Christ if we have a broken census thingy? You, you still haven't addressed that, and I don't think you're going to. Uh, so that, you know, we, we're open to experiences in God, and, um, you know, we have the epistemic justification of certain truths of the gospel, like God loves me, uh, I'm redeemed in Christ, uh, and things of that nature. Um, and so I'm pretty sympathetic to what, uh, and my notes have just gone on, so I'll just have to go off the top of my head. Uh, so I'm pretty sympathetic to what somebody like William Lane Craig would say that, um, you know, we, we have uh, this census divinitatis like Planting was talking about, but uh, it's just become defective in that, you know, when we receive Christ, you know, we're indwelt with the Holy Spirit and it sort of revitalizes it. In okay. Um, I didn't want to let this one go by. It went by very quickly. There might be some later discussion on this, but it, in we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. I've asked Christians many times to explain this to me too, and the wheels fall off at this point. The wheels fall off at a lot of points, but this is one of them. They, they say it, they say it quickly, and I don't think they're trying to obscure anything. They just have never thought about it. They haven't thought about it in the way that skeptics have thought about it, and they don't see the problem until you show it to them. So what is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Is the Holy Spirit physical and physically living in you in such a way that we should be able to see it on a scan? Well, they would immediately say, they would immediately say, no, you're being ridiculous. Although when you talk about something living in you, I don't know why that's ridiculous, but okay. So the Holy Spirit is a spirit that can't be scanned and is non-physical it's non-physical it emits no light no energy that we can detect nothing this holy nothing is living within you so you're still saying that it's projected spatially and locally if the spirit is in me does that mean it's in my body is, is some part of the spirit maybe slopping out of my body? You know, do I have some some spirit slopping out of my ear over there? You know, when I move, you know, if I move quickly, you know, the, the Holy Spirit move with me in that sense? And I'm just, I'm just curious. I'm just trying to figure this out. Well, I suspect many Christians would say no. No, it's not physical, and it's not located inside your physical locality. So again, I have to ask, what the heck does it mean 
that the spirit indwells you. And, and gives us that sort of epistemic knowledge of like, you know, for example, uh, God exists. Uh, I stand condemned before God for my sin. Uh, I've been redeemed in Christ. I okay, so the spirit tells us that God exists. So it doesn't tell me that. <clears throat> it tells us that I'm condemned for my sins or some such. It doesn't tell me that. It tells me that I have redemption in Christ, except it doesn't tell me that. It doesn't tell me any of that. And so it seems like the problem isn't our, that our senses thingy is broken. It seems like the Holy Spirit is shit at his job. I'm a child of God through Christ and just the uh, basic truths of the gospel. Uh, and, and so I am very sympathetic to that. And I do uh, want to try and model an epistemology, a religious epistemology that I think would most closely align uh, with. Okay. And um, this is the last note that I have. We got a, a lot more of this discussion to go, but I'm going to try to let most of it go uninterrupted, but my comments so far have been planned and I've been reading off of uh, notes. So I, I mentioned this earlier, religious epistemology, I feel like that requires a drink. So how is religious epistemology different from any other epistemology? By the way, do we have multiple epistemologies? I mean, I thought epistemology was just a uh, fancy word describing how we know true things. And I didn't know that there were different categories of knowing true things. So can someone uh, validate this idea that there are different epistemologies? or, you know, different zones. You got your religious epistemology, maybe a supernatural epistemology, a metaphysical epistemology. Uh, how about an atheist epistemology? Well, I, get, I think I'd push back on that because what we would say is the scientific method's fine. <laughs> we, we don't need a, a special epistemology, so strike that one. Uh, but, I mean... Is it that whenever you invent a realm of thinking that you can just invent an epistemology to go with it? What is, what is so different about religion that it needs a special category? Um, tell me a few more things about religious epistemology. Does religious epistemology work outside of the religion or it is only is it only useful for a particular religion and is it only useful for a certain people within a particular religion will someone please explain religious epistemology to me this group does not so i will wait with bated breath to see what comes up in the comments by the way, I have no idea what baited breath is, but I feel like I should probably take a mint. The Bible. Now, um, there are certain revisions that I'm a little more sympathetic to. So, you know, you have uh, there are a revised model that would say that uh, 
the census divinitatis, we have the census divinitatis, and instead of that directly uh, giving us the religious experience, it activates religious seemings. Uh, and so, you know, it would say that, you know, what seems to be the case, you know, I have some pro tanto justification that uh, I should believe it absolutely. Okay, I'm sorry. Pro tanto justification. Okay. I feel like I may have missed one or two uh, census thingies. Another reason that I'm making this a drinking game is to highlight the sheer idiocy of using jargon in this way. There are some good reasons for jargon in specialized fields to exist. In engineering, there is jargon that engineers use so that engineers in other parts of the planet and other cultures will immediately understand clearly what another engineer is talking about. Same happens with medicine. Medicine is nothing but jargon. Once again, it's, it's necessary, though, so that there is a clarity of thought if you are collaborating with another physician halfway around the world. You know, you need some common language to be able to talk about this stuff. And even then, you should only use jargon when it's necessary, when normal words are insufficient. And that's the purpose for jargon. It adds clarity when you can't gain that clarity using normal words. A census thinging is just jargon for the sake of jargon. They could easily just say sense of the divine. I think it's fewer syllables, but it's, it's pretty close. Sense of the divine. They do not have to say senses divinity. They don't have to say that. As if, if spoken in Latin, it's official. If you just say it in English, well, it's boring. There is, there is zero benefits to using a piece of jargon there that most of your audience would not understand anyway. It's just a way of making yourself look smarter than you are because, Ooh, you see, I know these Latin words. It's also a way of bolstering your argument and giving it more weight than it deserves. You know, if we just say a sense of the divine, that doesn't add much weight to it. But if we say it's a census thingy, then it becomes a thing, an object, something that's almost medical, scientific. You see, it's in Latin, it's the language of the medical profession, so it must be a real thing. It, it adds a sense of truthiness to it. Notice I said it adds a sense of truthiness rather than verisimilitude. 
because we don't have to use that word. So why? Um, so it's so when you are talking to Christians, or when Christians are talking about this stuff in scenarios where it's not an academic scenario at all, like the podcast, their own, there is no reason to use this kind of jargon at all. None. But I think that Christians do this, Christians in general, I'm not just backing on these guys, Christians in general do this all the time to add a sense of gravitas, a big word, uh, to add some weight to their argument when their argument is not weighty enough. You should be very suspicious when an argument requires a bunch of words that sound made up. One, they probably are. And two, it's, they're doing it to obscure the, the, uh, the, the um, mundaneness of, of what they're actually saying. All right. Um, there, there will be some questions about um, some of these terms later, but I just wanted to, I just wanted to point that out. Um, and we should call Christians out on that because they are really bad offenders when it comes to this. And I know that, you know, this fellow Travis is, is I'm sure he's a nice guy and he's probably not a pompous ass. He just talks like one because that's how his Christian community has taught him to speak. Isn't uh, any overwhelming defeater or evidence to the contrary. So it's what's known as a seemings account. And so you have different um, people like uh, Trent Doherty, uh, Richard Swinburne is a big proponent of a seemings account of religious experience. And, you know, so somebody like Swinburne would say that, you know, God, uh, loves each of us individually and as such he would have some motivation to perhaps reveal himself in a personal way to us uh to you know reveal certain things about himself uh in, in a personal way and to tell us certain things about ourselves and so um you know it, it would be expected uh that you know uh if a perfectly loving god exists uh that you know he would have some way of communicating with those he loves and so you know uh that you know uh uh, religious experience to some degree would be expected uh, given the existence of God. Okay, this um, thought flow that he is describing from his Swinburnian perspective is uh, a flow of thought that sometimes atheists use too. I would say that maybe atheists use this as incorrectly as he is using it now. In fact, I'm sure I've used it, but it's also incorrect. Because what he is doing is taking his seeming, we'll, we'll get to seeming later, what seems to be the case, or what seems ought to be the case, and saying that this is, this is what we should expect from God. From a theological perspective, I, I believe that this is a mistake. You have no idea what you should expect from God outside of what God has told you to expect. So you can't say that, you know, it seems like, you know, a loving God who's all powerful would want to communicate with his creation. Let me stop you right there. I don't care if it seems like that to you. 
that doesn't make it so. Because as an atheist, I can say it seems like a loving God would not allow uh, a satanic-influenced being to enter the garden and corrupt humankind in the first place. Yeah, that seems like something a loving God wouldn't do. So therefore, God is not loving, or God does not exist. You would you would disagree with that, but when it's a seeming that you know seems a certain way to you, then you count that as veridical. Let me just say it's not veridical, no matter who does it. And so, um, you know, there are these uh, various accounts. I'm I'm most sympathetic to a, a sort of a phenomenal conservatist seemings account. Um, I don't. And this, a lot of this goes, you know, with my internalist uh, sympathies. Phenomenal conservatist seemings and internalist. I'm going to drop internalist off the list, but phenomenal conservatist and seemings. Add that to your drinks. Uh, but uh, I'm not a huge fan of the proper functionalist. Uh, you know, I'm going to go more with... Uh, you know, being uh, justified uh, through seemings. But, uh, yeah, so we see a Strike that last order. A lot of this in the Bible that um, there's various passages about, you know, being led by the Holy Spirit. Um, I had some here I wanted to pull up. Uh, so, you know, like Jesus said, I will ask the Father to give you another helper to be with you always. He is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor recognizes him. But you recognize him because he lives in you and will be with you. John 14, 16 through 17. Okay, here's the section where Christians uh, are talking to themselves and they don't think they're talking to anyone else and they devolve into, well, here's what it says in this book. Because this is why we really should believe it. Because it says so in this old book. So let's see what the book says. Skeptics can tune out at this point, but I'm going to let this play out. And we also have things like, uh, for all who are led by God's spirit are God's children. For you have not received a spirit of slavery again into fear. Instead, you have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Uh, and the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Romans 8, 14 through 16. And now because you are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts to cry out, Abba, Father. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Second Corinthians 13, 14. And so um, I'll pretty much open it up for uh, conversation. Uh, but I just I, I think this is a very intriguing and interesting thing is, you know, the the role of the Holy Spirit in the lives of, of uh, believers and you know there's certain epistemic justifications and it seems to be taught in scripture and so yeah i thought it'd just be a fun conversation to have okay um so that's the introduction here and the rest of this conversation i might subdivide it uh into two parts uh and i want to uh I want to praise Tyler Fowler and David Russell here on this next part. They're going to say a lot of things that, you know, I'm going to disagree with, but I, I want to 
hold them up as men of integrity. I think they are truly seeking the truth, and I think they're trying to uh, understand it. I think they do something kind of bold here, which a lot of Christians wouldn't do on a podcast like this. They offer some pushback, or they ask some in the form of some tough questions. And one of them completely breaks Travis's brain. Uh, so we'll, <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll point that one out. So that's, uh, you know, they spent some time dealing with that. And then the second part, the last part of this, last third of this, is just them kind of pulling each other out of that tailspin trying to paste over the tough questions with some easy answers and they pat each other on the back um, and provide a bunch of spiritual encouragement, I guess, but it, it doesn't do a lot for the content. And so I'll see how much of that uh, I actually go through, but I, I just wanted to say, no matter what I say from this point, I think that Travis and I'm sorry, Travis, oh, by the way, Travis, uh, good job. Well studied. Um, I know that I've been harsh on you if you ever get a chance to watch this show. Uh, I think that you did a very good job with your uh, presentation. And uh, I, I would love to give you a chance to come on the show and um, just rebut anything that I've said. But I, I just wanted to call out uh, Tyler and Russell here in this section. I think they did. Uh, very well that i really am impacted by your intro travis that was very in-depth and i'm greatly appreciative of that so i've got a question actually sure you said uh and you alluded to this a little bit but has the census so whenever you say census divinitatis right we're talking about right. the sense of the divine uh yeah. within all people right and so has that since the fall has that been impacted was the census divinitatis different before the fall than it is now comparatively speaking okay uh so thanks for the question tyler and um yeah so i i did have a more in-depth presentation but my google dots uh dots just went out and so oh, yeah. i just i just kind of wing it off the top of my head which is uh, yeah well which is cool because uh okay. I, it just so happens that uh i have been thinking about religious epistemology uh, quite a bit. But to answer your question, so that's what uh, William Lane Craig uh, would kind of go along with something like that. Uh, and and uh, reasonable faith, he, he touches on this, that uh, that we do have this, uh, that, you know, uh, God, uh, you know, we have this like almost biological like mechanism that gives us a sense of the divine. And so, uh, you know, a uh, uh, question is, well, why don't we all experience uh, the Holy Spirit? And you know, so William Lane Craig has put forth the idea that, you know, perhaps uh, the, this innate census divinitatis is still there, but it's become defective uh, in a sense, you know, due to our fallen sinful nature. And that, you know, when we uh, receive Christ into our lives and, you know, uh, you have numerous passages that, you know, he will send the spirit of his son into us and so forth, that we're given that Holy Spirit and that uh, repairs uh, the census divinitatis within us. Uh, that now we can, you know, experience God in, in a more uh, full and robust way. And so, that's, you know, people like William Lane Craig would argue that that is the case, yes. Okay, uh, just a real quick question here, Travis. If the Holy Spirit comes and repairs 
This since is divinitatis for believers. Why do they still end up doubting that God exists? I gotcha. I got it. Because it would seem like if it was functioning properly, everybody would be Christian, right? Right, right. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, you have that. And, you know, so Plantiga, um, I, I, I don't go as far as he does because he would say that, you know, it's, well, he would say that, well, if God is guiding the biological process, then it seems more than reasonable that he would create within us this, uh, you know, cognitive faculty. And so I, I'm pretty sympathetic to internalism uh, as opposed to externalism, where it's just it's external to us. I think it, it, I hold more of an internalist thing that uh, I think we have the census divinitatis. And this will kind of follow suit with like a seemings account that the census divinitatis can activate religious seemings. And then, you know, I'm, I have pro tanto reason for, you know, holding to that seeming unless there's a uh, sufficient reason that I should. Can you break those two things, those two concepts down? What exactly is seemings and what exactly is pro, pro tanto? Well, yeah, it's just like a face value, like, you know, a, a face value, uh, you know, plausible uh, justification for, you know, what seems to be the case. And so, uh, you know, uh, this is going to be a, a lot of uh, philosophers philosophers of religion uh, that I look up to are, are going to hold the seemings of account. So you have people like Rasmussen, uh, Richard Swinburne, uh, Trent Doherty, uh, and people like that. So basically, you know, uh, the, the externalists, they would kind of hold that, uh, you know, we all have this religious belief, right? And uh, if our cognitive faculties are functioning properly, then we, we should be open uh, to this, you know, sense of the divine so to speak that that's innate within all of us and then so you know plantiga kind of modified that to say the well uh properly functioning uh cognitive abilities functioning in the way that they were designed to in other words in relationship with god gotcha now what triggers these seemings so i i, I... okay again the uh, properly functioning thing i i need someone to tell me what constitutes a properly functioning religious faculty. How, how do we know when one is properly functioning and one, when one isn't? Are there any doctors that specialize in this field? The article that you yeah. sent me, um, I believe, and please correct me if I'm wrong. So I think the examples they used, I think you just used them, was like a sunset, for example, right. would trigger these things. Can you uh, explain how that works? Right. So, uh, and that, that's a very good point because and that will help kind of distinguish uh the two is that um so you have something like you know looking at a beautiful sunset or like uh moral uh intuitions and, and things like that and that mm -hmm. can sort of trigger the census divinitatis or sense of the divine with you and so that gives you like an experience or reason for believing in god right that that's going to be the uh externalist type model that uh plantinga goes with uh, gotcha then you have modif modified versions that would say okay so i see something like you know a starry sky uh, a sunset things like that and that uh triggers the census divinitatis which then triggers a religious seeming and so then it goes to uh seemings that are you know basically uh from a more internalist point of view yeah absolutely you know I could see how someone would kind of uh, or would object 
to this in the mm -hmm. sense that it is very subjective, right? But at the right. same time, I think that's what makes it so much very so or so very much more believable. Okay, let me stop you right there for a moment, uh, Tyler. So they're talking about things that create this sense of what we would call a sense of awe. Uh, and I just want to call back to Darren uh, last week when I ask about uh, this. I ask him, what is what is spiritual? What is what do Christians mean when they talk about spiritual? And uh, he said, the closest I can come is a sense of awe. What they are describing here is a sense of awe. That's a perfectly normal human thing. I have had a sense of awe over certain things that I've seen or experienced. It's an emotional response. Awe is an emotional response. So what you're telling me is that when you eat that the census divinity the census thinging is triggered by emotional responses and if you have a further emotional response that tells you it's god then that means your census thingy is working is that mm. it's so personal, like you said in your opening, that... But what if someone has an emotional response that tells them it is the consciousness of the universe? No, it's not a, a personal God. It's the universal consciousness. Then would their senses thingy be wrong? How can we tell? How can we tell? God, you know, if God is a personal God and he wants to have a relationship with us, he's going to make us in a way that we can respond to him, right? Fallacy. If God is this, then he would do that. Like I said, I know that many atheists, including myself, slip into arguing like this, but it's just not true. So if you're going to make a statement like that, you have to set up the expectation with the best material that you have. So if, if you're going to say that, then you have to say, this is the expectation left to us by scripture. But you can't just reason your way into, if, if a God was this, then he would do that because you're just creating your own God at that point. And to be personal and to be that kind of God, I think the two line up, you know, one for one. He's going sure. to do that because he wants to have that relationship with us. So that's just my opinion about it. But uh, David, what a what you're quiet, bro. What are you well, you know, I was letting you, uh, you know, finish your line there because, yeah. you know, you had you had some stuff that kind of flowed together. I don't want to interrupt that. So uh, I was going to say, what is the difference between seemings and properly basic beliefs? Okay, so properly basic beliefs, that's going to be things like, you know, um, like the belief in the external world, uh, belief in, you know, from your senses. Uh, and, and so, you know, Plantinga puts belief in God in that category, that it's uh, belief in God is just properly basic. Uh, and that, you know, we have this innate census divinitatis. Uh, and, you know, the seemings are, are going to be a, a bit different. That's more of... Uh, 
perception, uh, you know, how how I'm perceiving things. So, like, for example, I perceive that there's uh, a tree in front of me. And, and, you know, unless there's reason why I should doubt the fact that I'm perceiving this tree in front of me, you know, I have some uh, initial justification for believing that, yeah, there, there's a tree in front of me. If that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. It's like you're taking in the evidence yeah. that there's a tree in front of you coming to the logical conclusion that there is indeed a tree in front of you right right and and (laughs) so um i i i do think this all right so someone walked me through this in the comments i still don't know the difference between a properly basic belief and a seeming uh seems to be uh a lot of the the view a a lot of the biblical authors uh seem to have too as, as far as uh i think you know uh, they were guided by the, the Holy Spirit, you know. Um, I'm especially touched by, you know, the passages in Romans that, you know, because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts who cries out, Abba, Father. And, you know, the spirit, yeah. the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are God's children. And so um, I, I'm not, uh, while I have my views on, on the exact, you know, religious epistemology, which would be, sort of a Swinburnian seemings account. Uh, I, I am somewhat flexible on my religious epistemology because there are different ways you can lay this out. Uh, yeah. and, and so that's why I didn't want it to be the, the main focus uh, as, as opposed to, you know, the believer, uh, you know, having that witness and fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And, uh, you know, you, you see this in, in the Old Testament uh, where, you know, you have the, the tabernacle where uh God and Doyle's, and then it, it's the temple. And after the resurrection, it seems to be the case that the believers serve as that temple for the uh, Holy Spirit to indwell. Yeah. And so there's, um, uh, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask you, uh, since you're kind of diving into this, uh, we had on PRA when you used to host with me as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happens when we have someone like Aaron and, and Nick that come on um, that claim they, they don't experience this at all? They don't have a defense. They don't experience the, the divinitatis, you know, the census divinitatis. Uh, right. It, you know, and I know you alluded to something like, well, maybe there's something not functioning right, which, again, well, harkens no. back to properly basic beliefs almost, mm-hmm. but. They're Christian, right? Or at, at, at least right. uh, uh, Nick is, you know. But they also have uh, a bit of uh, autism. Sure. So, how do you address people that are Christian that say they don't experience this? That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. That is so. That is an interesting phenomenon. And first, you know, obviously, I don't know what someone else's personal relationship. Uh, to God is. Uh, so I, I, I can't, you know, especially as an eternalist, I can't perceive from their point of reference, but, um, you know, it, it could, you know, I, I don't think religious uh, experiences are mandatory for uh, Christians, um, but I, I do think it, it is a viable option. And um, so we see how, you know, it, it can be uh, justified if you hold to like a seemings account, or if, you know, you're an externalist, there's the properly Okay, I just wanted to interrupt my coughing spasm to say, uh, just to put a pin in this, he's saying that he doesn't think that religious experiences are mandatory. Let's see if um, this carries through. 
functioning uh, cognitive faculties uh, view. And so I, I would say that it is open for the believer. And, um, you know, I was just reading here that, you know, uh, believers, you know, uh, can be a, a temple for God's Holy Spirit, like uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If you uh, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Uh, and so there are these uh, various passages where the Holy Spirit is said to indwell us and in such a way that it, it produces these what I call seemings of being God's children in our hearts. We cry out, Abba, Father. So I, I don't I honestly don't know why some uh, experience it and some do not. Um, yeah, the reason I ask it, though, you know, the reason I ask it is because, you know, um, I don't know where we throw the, this category. You know, I don't know where we put place this category in our belief system and in our apologetic and in whatever, you know, uh, for the simple yeah. fact is, you know, we have Mormons that claim that they have their own burning right. of the and their experience with the Holy Spirit. We have, uh, I guess, just the subjective nature alone. Uh, would, right. would could, can put it into question more than it can justify it. Excellent bit of pushback, David Russell. Excellent. Is that yeah. true? Well, sort. Of, so this is where I'm very sympathetic to what William Lane Craig says. Okay, and so he would say that. Um, well, number one, you know, so you kind of allude to uh, well, what about religious pluralism? Uh, that you know, there are these. Uh, different experiences uh, of God. And from what I understand, there have been some studies that would, you know, have shown that the experience of what Christians refer to as, you know, the witness of the Holy Spirit tends to be different than uh, other religious experience of like being all with the one. And Okay. Where are these studies that show that the experience of the Holy Spirit is different? And so forth. But that that aside, um, I w I would just say that, uh, that 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 is interesting. Um, actually, uh, with this, I mean, just because some uh, are, are faults doesn't mean that therefore they're all faults. But um, that that is a good question. One that I need to think about a little bit more. Okie doke. And with that, Travis's brain just got broken the cognitive dissonance was too much and uh we're, we're gonna start putting him back together but that's you know that sound you heard was the screeching of the brakes and the wheels falling off we'll play some more of this but i don't think that we'll get to the end this is <clears throat> what uh where i really think of as the beginning of the end of uh, the discussion and they have many more things to say and you know they take a few stabs at at this but i, I think that for the outsider listening to this this is the screeching tires the wheels falling off and uh, debris going everywhere but then you have somebody like William Lane Craig who would say that, uh, you know, that 
there's two different categories. So when you talk about with the unbeliever, he would he would distinguish like knowing God exists versus showing God exists. So he would say for the Christian, the knowing like the certain feelings of certainty uh, are accomplished through the inner witness of the Holy Spirit that has revived the the census divinitatis and everything. And he would say, but when showing it or, or dialogue with the skeptic, uh, it would go more into, uh, you know, arguments from natural theology. Okay. So I, I don't want to let Travis get away with this. He is not, he's no longer even attempting to answer the question that broke him. He's, he's just moved on to it by answering a different question. And he's talking about knowing rather than showing, which has absolutely nothing to do with the uh, question that David Russell put forth. They're going to let him get away with it, but I'm not. And things like that. So William Lane Craig will make the distinguish that, you know, he would distinguish knowing versus showing. But then you have others like Trent Doherty and, and I think even to a certain extent, Swinburne, who would use this as a form of evidence itself. Uh, absent defeaters and so forth. Here's yeah, what I want to do. Yeah, here's yeah, what I want to do, Dave. Dave, this Sorry. is what I, you're good. You're good. Uh, this is what I would suggest both of us do: <laughs> is we should get a ex Mormon who has converted to Christianity to come on the show <laughs> and distinguish and ask them: Would you say that your burning in the bosom <laughs> is distinct and different from what you experience now? That's how I would separate that. <laughs> that. That would be interesting. It would be an interesting show, you, you know, but Tyler, like my only concern with that is like we could also get a Christian that has converted to atheism and, you know, say, well, that was just all in my mind. Bravo. Standing ovation. I mean, if I stood right now, you'd just get a crotch shot. I am wearing pants. Don't worry about it. But <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to stand up. But um virtual in my heart standing ovation uh to david russell for thinking the next thought and inserting it into the show uh, you are you are becoming a better thinker every day so uh good uh good on you for that um now, that's going to get brushed aside pretty quickly, but again, I just wanted to call it out. You know, and the, then they'll just discount it. Well, that's the thing. So, and that's the thing. It's like, I, here's you know, what, but you're, what category, you know. But here's what you're talking about, though, David. So we're talking about two different categories. Whenever you are saying, you know, we need to justify our beliefs and our claims to other people, I agree 100% with you. Mm -hmm. But whenever it comes to the individual, right, the subjective nature of it, you know, that's why I like what Travis said about the Holy Spirit. And I want to touch on this before we get off of here at some point is Romans eight sixteen, because the yeah. Holy Spirit is testifying with to our spirit, our spirit yeah. or, or with our spirit. Right. The, interesting. There's a debate there. Side note, there's a debate on how that's translated. Um, but really interesting discussion for my uh, Greek nerds out there. But anyway, uh, long story short, the the Holy Spirit is doing something, regardless how you want to translate that passage, is doing something with our spirit. And so for someone to go back to the original question uh, with your friend Nick, I believe you said his name was, I think that I would love to have a conversation with him and point to Romans 8, 16 and say, well, 
if you're not experiencing this, right? Yeah. Like, what are you experiencing exactly? You know, uh, Tyler, you bring a, a, a really good point because, uh, and, and that's why, you know, uh, so I'm, I'm in sort of the phenomenal conservatives camp that, you know, uh, if it seems to be, you know, if S, you know, has a seeming of P, then there's some justification uh, for the subject to believe P, right? Right. Uh, but, uh, you know, when it, when it comes to people not, ex you know, you know, Christians, uh, believers who don't experience it, um, I, I, you know, I, I look at the, the passages like Romans 8, but at, at the same time, I don't want to sort of overstep my bounds and say, well, maybe you're just not in a right relationship with God, you know, because I don't think that's the case. But um, right. There, there is this, you know, uh, various ways we can epistemically justify this. And so even go, going back to what David said, you know, so somebody like William Lane Craig would make a distinction between, you know, I have this in, internal epistemic justification, but I'm going to distinguish that from showing it and arguing with the, the non-believer. For that, right. I'll use arguments in natural theology and things like that. Something so else, I'm, right. Right. And, and so, um, you know, while I can't put myself in, in their shoes, um, uh, at, at the same time, I, I just can't overlook these passages like, you know, Romans 8, 1 Corinthians and, uh, you know, like Galatians 4, 6, uh, you know, it says, because we are children, uh, God's children, he has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts to cry out, Abba, Father. And that's an intimate term of, you know, uh, calling out to the father with through the love of Jesus. And uh, yeah. it, it, it is a little hard to. Just kind of overlook those passages. Yeah, yeah. I kind of wonder if if we are looking at that in an aspect of that's what the scriptures do for us when they get inside of us. You know, is there something like that versus just something like supernatural? How does this? How, how do the scriptures get inside of you? I mean, obviously, it's not just reading. Lots of people read. I read Bible more than most Christians even now. <clears throat> And so I doubt Russell would say the scriptures are getting inside of me. So um, is this just more Christianese? That is taking place because I know some people that would say the opposite. However, like you guys, I mean, I'm on, I'm on board with you. I do have it. You know, I, I do believe and, yeah. I, and I do believe it's by my experience that that these things are true. Uh, and yeah. yeah, and I definitely agree there's a difference between showing and knowing, right? Uh, yeah. But, you know, it, it does make an interesting point, though, that, you know, someone like my friend that doesn't experience, and both of my friends that re really led one of my friends to agnosticism, uh, uh, they don't have it. And you got to wonder, okay, so why don't they have it? You know, is there, is, is, is it different for everybody? You know, is it, you know, and I, I think that's probably correct. You know, God has us on different paths, different journeys, and takes us different routes. You know, absolutely. So I. So why would one of the routes he takes you to fill you with so much demonic doubt that you walk away from your faith? It, you know, it, for me, it's <laughs> mine. Mine is uh, mine is experienced through almost my rebellion, you know. So I get I get you know, out of line and I go way off in the left field and I don't want to run back to God. And the next thing you know, I'm being dragged back. You know, it's so I do some bad things and then I feel guilty, and then I try to do better from there. That's a perfectly human thing. That is not a sign of God dragging you back. Let me ask nothing you a question, can, David. You know, nothing I can do feels like I can escape it, 
so let, let me ask you a question, brother, just real quick, and not to get off side or not sidetracked. How would you justify that to an unbeliever? That that experience that you actually participate in, right? How would you justify that? Well, yeah. Well, you see, like you know, being a cumulative case apologetic, one of the biggest thing uh, or apologist, uh, one of the biggest things is trying to meet people where they're at. Right. I mean, you've talked about to. this, right? You yeah. have to do that. And you know what? I've learned through my experience is that there are people that want to know your experience. And right. there's people that will meet you at experience and be like, that made more sense to me than uh, anything right. to do with science, natural theology, perspective shift. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, so they come at it from a different point of view. So you have to understand their perspective and mm -hmm. for me you know i'm just glad it's there uh you, you know i do i th think it's got a lot of merit uh i think there is an inner witness i mean at least there is with me i you know i just it, it's just there i, I it, and for me like i can't explain it okay that's uh that's where, where we're gonna cut that off there's there's more but we get into the kind of the back third of the podcast where I think they're just trying to revitalize arguments that um, David Russell has inadvertently already killed. Trying to breathe life into a dead body and making making you feel like uh, that it's not dead and it's okay. Uh, it's going to be okay, folks. Christians, don't worry. Uh, at one point, they uh, have this epiphany, you know, prayer. Prayer. If you're not feeling this experience, you should pray to God that you should get this experience. Yeah, that's a novel idea. Um, this is not a novel idea, and it's not a good idea because people who find themselves in that place where of doubt and where they acknowledge, you know, I've been a Christian for all my life, and I have not experienced God the way other people are talking about it. To tell them to pray is just insulting. That person has been on their knees, their knees are bloody from having been on their knees a lot and praying. And this assumption that you haven't you haven't prayed or you haven't prayed right uh, is is insulting. In fact, at one point, uh, Tyler says, I guarantee if you pray to God uh, for him to reveal himself to you, I guarantee that he will. Yeah, Tyler, except he doesn't. And there are too many people, not me, you don't even have to think about me. There are too many people on your side of the fence that can falsify that very wild and desperate statement. So, um, hour and a half, I think I'm going to cut it off there. Next week, we are going to uh, look at William Lane Craig's more academic approach to this. I'm not saying that Travis didn't put together a good presentation that, you know, didn't have some traces of academia in it. I think it did. But we're talking about William Lane Craig in a particular lecture on this subject. And uh, it's just going to go to a very different level. At that point, William Lane Craig is going to go through a little bit more uh, explanation and definition, and he's going to answer some questions, presumably. So we'll watch for that so this is part one uh on the 
inner witness of the Holy Spirit. Part two will be next time, and we might open that one up for discussion. We didn't get any responses from uh, the audience. Here's the thing, uh, audience. If you want to be on one of these shows, you can't wait to the last minute to tell me. When I put the call out, you need to immediately send me an email, skepticsandseekers at gmail.com, or if you know my personal email address, use that one. Um, <clears throat> because if I don't get any responses, I'm going to do the show early. You know, I'm going to do it earlier in the week when it's a little bit more convenient. But if there are people who want to be on the show, I will genu genuinely open it to a recording on Saturday at um, 10 or 11. So uh, you, are, you are hearing this now. If you want to be on the show next week to talk about William Lane Craig's ideas on this with me, you are going to have to contact me right now to do so if you would like some cheap seats to the theater you need to contact me and let me know and i will try to let you know when i'm going to record so that you can uh, be a part of the audience and by the way you know i often talk about the usual suspects this is not just open to the people who have been on the show and the people i know or the people uh, who I like, you know, my favorites. If you're out there listening and you're thinking to yourself, I'd like to be on the show, but I don't know this guy. Just send me an email, your own. You meet the qualifications. <laughs> don't worry about it. Uh, it'll be fine. I don't actually care whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, um, you know, some other cult. I, I, I don't actually care. So we'll we'll make a good show out of it. Uh, I don't need to know you to um, have a good show. And you don't have to be a great broadcaster to have a good show. I'll, I'll take care of all of that. You'll, you'll look good, whoever you are. Um, so come on. Uh, brave the um, whatever barriers have been keeping you from doing it. I know you're out there listening. I know how many people listen to the show. Uh, there are plenty of you who would be great in the pew. Uh, with me. And you might just want to come on the show and say nothing or very little. You can do that too. Uh, it's a lot of fun. And so we will see you, skeptics and seekers, at gmail.com. We'll see you next time. Bye bye. <laughs>